Well, family, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. Actually, before I start, how about we pray and we'll ask for the Lord's blessing. Yeah, Father, we just we want to stop in this moment before we even think about anything, Lord. And we just want to ask that your spirit would teach us today, that we would see what it means to know you. Father, I just pray that your, your love and the warmth of your presence would surround us now as we learn from the word. We would be convicted uh, to love you more, to love your people, and to love your word. And if anyone doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would, again, soften hearts and show them why they need Jesus. For I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been journeying through the book of Acts throughout this whole term. Uh, we started, if you remember, in chapter 9. That's when who, Paul, who was known as Saul at the time, he became a Christian in chapter 9. And for today, we find ourselves in chapter 16. Now, let me remind you that the book of Acts was written by Luke, who's a disciple of Jesus. And he's recording for us all the events that the early church went through as the gospel started to go out to all the nations, and this started in the first century. They received the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, and little by little, like wildfire, the gospel starts to spread, and it goes all the way out throughout the decades. Along the way, there's persecution, and you'd expect that, but not even the gates of hell can stop the gospel, and the room filled with people today is a testimony of that. Now, in chapter 16, Paul, one of the disciples, is at the point in his life where he's been saved for many years now. To be precise, there's a gap of almost 15 years between chapter 9, when he comes to know the Lord, and chapter 16, which is our passage for today. In other words, a lot has happened. Both Paul and his companions, they've already traveled on a mission trip far and wide, and they've been preaching the gospel to the nations. We saw this two weeks ago when Frankie taught us the word, and that was from chapters 13 and 14. They've also had many moments defending the simple truth of the gospel. We saw that last week, or at least an example of that, when they stood in Jerusalem and they said that it is only by faith in Christ that they will be saved. And now in 16, we find Paul and his fellow leader Silas about to embark on a mission trip back into a twisted world that needs to know who Jesus is. Now, in this passage also, Luke doesn't actually tell us about the whole mission trip. He only gives us the start of the mission trip, particularly in a city called Philippi, which we'll read about. The, the whole mission trip actually finishes somewhere in the middle of chapter 18. But before I explain the passage this morning, I want to set the stage for us, give us something to think about. I wonder if you've ever been in a position where you had planned for something to happen, but it didn't end up working that way. As you've been traveling through life, trying to be a faithful witness for Jesus, desiring to be led through the word by the Spirit, you want to establish the direction that you're heading in, you make decisions to set a five-year plan up, but for whatever reason, life just doesn't cooperate. Or perhaps you've experienced an obstacle that not only wasn't what you had planned to happen, maybe it was completely out of your control. Maybe you've even been tempted to question whether God knew what he was doing. Church, I want us to consider this because just as we commonly experience this, 
so too in today's passage, a similar thing happens to the disciples. In our passage, from verse 6 onwards, we're going to see how in a peculiar way, Timothy, remember, remember he gets recruited in this mission trip, Timothy, Paul, and Silas, they end up in a place that they didn't intend on being in. In other words, God's plans were different to theirs. Let's have a read together in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 16. 6 to sorry we'll go from 6 to 8 I apologize Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been kept by the holy spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia when they came to the border of Mysia they tried to enter Bithynia but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas now that can be difficult to visualize in your mind there's a lot of Places that we don't commonly use. Um, so I've got a photo that, would, that will help. Uh, now this photo is a photo of the second, the whole missionary journey that they go on. If you look to your right, the red circle is the church in Antioch. That's in Syria. That acts as the home church that sends out the disciples. And they actually travel to the side, like northwest, up to the grayish region, if you can sort of see it. That's where places like Derby and Lystra are. And this is where they meet Timothy, already planted churches from the first mission trip. That's how they start their journey. But we're told in this passage that as they des- desire to enter into a specific region, which is marked out by that red outline, if you look at that shape, that's where they want to go. But they're, they're told, no, they're not allowed to enter into that area. What we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit stops them. We're told that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into that area, even though that was their original plan. I could imagine that this would probably raise some eyebrows, right? I mean, why would God's plan forbid them from entering into this region? They want to preach the gospel. Now, we're not told practically how it is that they were stopped. We don't know what what happened. It could have been anything, right? It could have been um, travel problems or maybe the weather. We don't know. And instead of Luke telling us what might have practically happened, he he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. He tells us that God's plans were different to theirs and that it was not God's will. I think the reason Luke puts it this way is because he understands something that we would do well to learn to trust. He knows that as Timothy, Silas, and Paul were traveling and preaching the gospel, if, if something ever went wrong or didn't go as planned or maybe a door was closed or perhaps even they were diligently praying with the little strength that they have left, maybe receiving an answer that they were not hoping for, if anything like that happened, They knew and believed that as they were walking as witnesses of Jesus, God was working out all things according to his will and that God was leading them for their good and for his glory. This is why the disciples were so filled with the spirit and filled with strength to persevere and not turn back. And churches, we desire in life as we walk, we want to be obedient to Jesus, and we want to be good witnesses for His name, 
we should be encouraged and strengthened by this. God knows what he's doing and he isn't surprised by anything. And so by God's grace, after traveling for a long time, they arrive at a place called Troas, which on the map, if you look to the left of the uh, irregular outline shape, that first arrow, that's Troas, right before the water. And so they arrive there. Uh, then they still don't necessarily know why God has forbid them from entering into this region. They haven't necessarily been given an answer. They just know that they have to go there. But eventually they get a vague indication as to where from there they should head out to. And so in verses 9 and 10, we're told that Paul has a vision and he's convicted that they need to go to Macedonia. And so that's where they go. But again, he's not given the why. He's just told, go here. This vague vision of a man that he doesn't really know, saying, come to Macedonia. But they humbly obey. And they know they need to take the gospel to this, to this place. They show their trust and love for God by their obedience to Him, regardless of the circumstances. And so off they go, traveling to this city in Macedonia called Philippi. And in verse 12, we're told that Philippi is a Roman colony, and it's uh, a leading city. Now, all that really means is that at the time, it was under the authority of the Roman Empire. And it was a, a well-known city, a lot of activity in this place, on the edge of Macedonia. That's the next arrow after the body of water. They travel over there. Now, Philippi might sound familiar to you. And if it does, that's a good thing. Because we know that ultimately, in this journey, they plant a church there. People come to know Jesus and they plant a church. And many years later, maybe 10 years later, Paul writes a letter back to this church. And how beautiful is this? We have that letter. We can see what Paul wrote to this church. The letter to us in the New Testament is the letter to the Philippians. Philippian is like Australian and Philippi is Australia. But it was a city, not a country. And so we can read that letter and we can see what Paul was exhorting them in. We'll make some connections to that later on as we go. In this journey that they travel on, we're going to find two major interactions, two main characters. Let's read about the first one together in verses 13 and 15. Would you read with me? From verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was, an, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message when she and the members of her household were baptized. She invited us to her home, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So we're introduced to a, a woman named Lydia, and she's from Thyatira. Now, the interesting thing about this place is, notice how they don't actually enter into that region that's outlined in red. Thyatira is actually a city in that region. So there's a bit of irony there, as if to suggest God knows what he's doing, right? We're also told that she's a seller of purple goods. This city in Thyatira was actually known for creating material with purple dye. 
And so Lydia was a businesswoman. She took her business as an entrepreneur to Philippi. And it's, it's probably the case that she had been wealthy. And so that's why she was able to host the disciples. And lastly, we're told that she's a worshiper of God. Now, regarding this last one, being a worshiper, we need to remember that during the book of Acts, we're learning about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was going out to all the, the nations in the Roman world. The new covenant or the new promise in the blood of Jesus. That's what we're learning about. This started on the, on, on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, and it continues all the way even until now, as the gospel goes out and all nations come to know Jesus. But there was somewhat of an overlapping period during this time between the old covenant in Moses and the new covenant in Jesus. There was a period of 40 years within which the book of Acts took place that both the gospel went out and Judaism still existed. There was a temple. Now, I've got a timeline here that might help that make a bit more sense. If you look at the red line, that signifies the old covenant, starting all the way back in Exodus on Mount Sinai and continuing all the way through into the first century. And that red line signifies the new covenant in Jesus. Notice how there's an overlapping period. That overlapping period is where the book of Acts takes place. The temple in Jewish, uh, I guess, in the Jewish religion is still standing. People are still going to the temple to offer sacrifices and to perform the Jewish customs. And remember, it lasted for about 40 years or so, really ending with the death and resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, but continuing through until about 70 AD, which is when the Roman Empire actually destroyed the city of Jerusalem and burned down the temple. All that to say that it was probably in this way that Lydia was a worshipper of God. She was probably a convert to Judaism. That was very common. It probably happened with Cornelius, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at it in chapter 10. And this is why also the disciples go to the river in verse 13. You see, in Philippi, if we go back to the map, in Philippi, which is basically the last red arrow on this side for you, it's very far from Jerusalem. So the further you go out from Jerusalem, the, le- the less likely you are to find Jewish people or even a synagogue. And that was the case in this city. There was no synagogue. So they would actually go to the river. They would go to the river to perform their Jewish customs, like washing their hands before they pray. This was an organized gathering under the Jewish Old Covenant. But you see, the disciples knew that this Old Covenant of works couldn't help them. They knew that it ultimately could not save them from their sin. This washing of hands in the river could only clean their skin. They needed to go to the true temple, the true mountain, and receive living water from Jesus. So they could be washed and made clean from within. And so we're told that out of all the women that they preached to, there's a woman named Lydia and her heart is opened. In verse 18, it says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia's faith in Jesus as Lord and her turning from sin was only a result of God first opening her heart. In this moment, Lydia receives the grace of God. And on top of that, because both her and her household understood and responded to the gospel, they were baptized, right? 
Those who come to Jesus get baptized out of joyful obedience. You see, baptism is, is, is a symbol. It's a, a, a proclamation, an outward proclamation of an inward reality. It's an outward demonstration or symbol of something that's more important that has happened on the inside. The washing of sin from the heart by the blood of Jesus. And as well, immediately we see the fruit of her salvation. As soon as she comes to know the Lord, she persuades them, that is the disciples, to come to her house. Now something ironic that I truthfully didn't plan, if you know my wife, her name is Lydia as well. And her middle name is actually Grace. If you know anything about my wife, you know that she's very small. She's literally tiny. Okay? And so if she's that big, her stomach is probably that big. She doesn't eat that much. Before her and I got married, she would come over to my house or my parents' house for dinner. And my mom, God bless her soul, she had two boys, uh, myself and my brother Pav. He's, I don't know if he's here. I think he's with the kids. And if you, you know, we like to eat. Okay? So she's used to that. That's, that's the, the context that she's used to. She cooks for, you know. So when Lydia would come over, <laughs> she would come over for dinner and she'd have a plate with food. And my mum, you know, as she's walking past, she'd kind of look at the plate. And she'd... <laughs> you know, like, poor thing. She can't, you know, she... Poor thing. She doesn't eat that much. <laughs> and the, the funny thing was my mum, out of love for her, wanted to show her kindness. And so what she would do is when she'd see Lydia's finished her plate, she'd take the plate and then she'd say to her, Lydia, would you like some more? But you know how sometimes you ask people a question and you're not really asking them a question. You're actually telling them what you're going to do. That's what my mom did. So she'd grab the plate and as she's asking, would you like some more? She'd grab the spoon and fill her another plate of food. She wanted to show her kindness. She wanted to be generous and hospitable to my wife. Now, who is my wife? And in this story, we see something that's even more deeply true about the child of God. You see, generosity and hospitality are not cultural traits. They're fruits of a child of God. And we've got to remember that. Lydia showed immediate hospitality and generosity. And on top of that, in this first interaction, we see the moment where the disciples remember the blessing that comes from trusting and following God's plans as he saved the first Christians in Philippi. God knows what he's doing and his sovereign will is working in the big and the small. We we need to always remember this. Now the second interaction is an interesting one. Before we meet the second main character in this chapter, the disciples actually have a run-in with a, a slave girl who's possessed by a demon. And you find this in verses 16 to 20, but long story short, there's this slave girl who's demon-possessed and she's in the practice of fortune-telling, something to the equivalent of a psychic in our time or tarot cards or even star signs, all based on those things. And so she's in this practice. She has this skill set and we're told that there's a group of men that make or sort of gain financial profit from her fortune-telling. They use her to, to make a profit for themselves. And in this story she starts to follow around the disciples for many days. We're told that she starts to speak out about the disciples, basically saying, follow and listen to these guys. They're people of the Most High and they're telling us how to be saved. The interesting thing about this story 
is that it seems so disconnected from the narrative that you almost don't know what to do with it. The only reason Paul responds, mind you, after many days, is because he's annoyed by her. He turns and he rebukes her in Jesus' name and the demons cast out. It seems so strange. We're not really given an explanation. We don't even know what happens to the slave girl after this. But as we keep reading, we'll notice that this interactions that the disciples have with this slave girl and the consequences of their actions, they set the stage for what's going to be the climax of this whole chapter. Because of Paul's casting out of this demon, the men who made financial gain from this woman, the men who owned her, they realize they can't make any more money, so they get angry. And what they do is they drag Silas and Paul before the magistrates, before the governing authority, right? This becomes a legal, political issue. They drag them before the authorities and there's a whole crowd of people joining in on the attack. Let's read about it in verses 22 to 24. Have a look what Luke tells us. From verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Dragged before the governing authorities, stripped of their clothes, beaten, severely flogged, put in prison like criminals, watched as if they were condemned and chained like animals. Church, if there's any point at which they would have had reason to probably start to question God's plans, what, like, what's He up to? Maybe it would have been now. You know, a few years ago, every Sunday morning, I'd wake up early and I'd drive to the eastern suburbs to a beach uh, before I would meet with my old church. And uh, I'd, I'd go there to do some exercise, go for a swim, have breakfast. But I would always go there to watch the sunrise. There was a, a really beautiful cliff edge in Malabar and it looks over the, the face of the water. There was a clean cut between sky and sea. It was really, really nice. But every now and then, as I would sit on this cliff and I'd be waiting for the sun to lift its eyes above the water, hoping to see this magnificent golden circle overwhelm the sky with its brilliance, sometimes, instead of that masterpiece, all I would be able to see was this gray, hazy sheet, a dull and dim light barely scraping through. I mean, I could... I knew the sun was there, but I couldn't clearly see it. And you know, sometimes life feels this way. Sometimes the struggle is that in our circumstances, we can't make any sense of what's going on, right? That's where it gets difficult. The difficulty is not just when things don't go as planned, because that's going to happen. That's inevitable. The difficulty on top of that is when things go astray, but I can't make any sense of what's going on. I can't see any good in the situation. I can't find any meaning or substance or purpose in that. That's where it gets hard. When strength is lost, 
Answers aren't what we hoped they would be when plans go in a direction out of our control. When your family rejects you because you follow Jesus. When you receive news of a miscarriage. Maybe for the second time. When your marriage is falling apart. When you lose a loved one. When your children don't want Jesus. When the diagnosis is cancer. Out of our control. When I was about nine or ten years old, my mum was diagnosed with cancer. And she had a really difficult wrestle with that. Um, and she, she came out of it. I was too young to emotionally respond. I just have images of what she was struggling with. You know, all the side effects of the chemotherapy. But about two or three weeks ago, on top of that, she came out of that. Another relative was diagnosed with cancer and has to go through the exact same thing. And you almost stop and you just, this sigh of, like, you just, like, with the psalmist, you say, why? You know, church, although it feels like the sun is not there, he is there. And we know this because he sees us. Jesus, the true Son, the Son of God, is always near and He's watching, strengthening us by His grace, keeping us fixed in His love as we live and breathe, as we walk, as lights trying to reflect Him in this crooked world. Paul and Silas, they knew this. Timothy, he was learning this. And in the time we'd expect the disciples, or to find the disciples, curled up into a little ball, hugging their knees because they've got nothing else to hold on to. Instead, they're praying and singing hymns to God. And in this moment, we see something really special. Have a look at how Luke describes it in verses 25 to 28. Starting from verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. I mean, what a moment, what a testimony of the peace that is beyond all understanding and the joy that strengthens the soul. You know, sometimes I read this and I get convicted. I think to myself, if these guys are singing and praying in the hardest moments, I don't always find myself doing that. You know, we often say that we're walking with Jesus, but sometimes it feels like I'm limping. Like I'm just stumbling. I'm barely making it through. Even at moments, sitting down on my backside, legs crossed, I don't even know where to go next. But we see something profound in what strengthened the disciples in this moment. You see, in life, the strength that we receive has to be in something greater than the answer. It has to be. Right? Because if our hope is in the answer to a prayer, if our hope and our strength is in the answer to the prayer, then what happens if the answer is not what we want? What do we do then? 
their hope and their strength was not in the one who, not in the answer to the prayer, but was in the one who answered their prayer. That's the difference. And these are worlds apart, church. Worlds apart. You've got one, one that's selfish, me. I want an answer to appease and satisfy my desires. And then you've got one where we rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That's where we want to be. That's where Paul and Silas were. This is where we should be, church, because some of the most defining moments, some of the most character-building moments, some of the most comforting moments, so that in 10 years from now, we know how to respond, those moments take place, place when all strength is lost. That's where we find that. In those moments where we feel like we've got no more strength to hold on to God, only to realize that He's holding us. I mean, I can just imagine how scared and confused this jailer would be. This guy, he knows that if the prisoners had escaped, he's as good as dead, right? Because in Roman law, if prisoners escape under the watch of a guard, they are killed. And so this is why he hopelessly seeks to end his own life. He's got no hope. But in this moment, as his hands grip the cold steel to pierce his body, from behind the cell doors, slammed open by God himself, he hears a voice of a prisoner from the inside pleading for his life. One man's pain, one man's confusion leads to the salvation of another. And in this moment, the jailer asks the most important question in the whole world. Climax of the story is in these two verses here. In verses 29 and 30, the jailer calls for the lights in verses 29. He rushes in and he trembles before Paul and Silas. And then in verse 30, he takes them out and kneels before them. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I wonder if in the minds of the disciples, as they see this man, every reason they could have given to complain and wallow in self-pity, gone. Disappeared in an instant. In this moment, all the dots are connected. They see with eyes wide open. Why God had planned all these things. What was God up to? What was he doing? Stars that seem separate, unrelated, having no connection to each other, now a constellation of glory connected by this humbling question. They see these little moments where God's plan and will is unfolding. The jailer is admitting he's got no hope. This is the climax of the story. He's a sinner, dead in sin, with no hope. He needs what they have. Look at how the disciples respond. And friends, if, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, this question is for you to ask and the answer is for you to hear. Look at verse 31 with me. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It all points to what Jesus has done so that we may be forgiven and have new life in Him. And the funny part is that a moment ago, the jailer was so worried, right? He's so worried that he was about to lose his life because the prisoners had possibly escaped. He seeks to take his own. That's how worried he was. And this is humorous because in verses 32 to 34, what we see in this part is that he's so filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Because he's been saved, he takes them out of the prison. He takes them to his own house. He cleans their wounds. And he feeds them. 
Church, if this man is caught, he's dead. But his heart was so changed by the grace of God and by the grace of God that in an instant the fear of death that once plagued his soul vanished like dew before the morning sun. A couple of months ago I was talking to my brother and we were reflecting on a friend of ours. Um, his name was Johnny. And about almost nine years ago, he passed away due to cancer uh, at the age of 23. And I was having a conversation with my brother and my brother was reflecting on a, a chat he was having with Johnny right before he passed. And my brother asked him a question saying, you know, are you scared of dying? And I'll never forget the response of Johnny. He said, I'm, I'm unsettled with the idea of dying. It's not comforting. But I'm not afraid of death. You see, Johnny, the Philippian jailer, and us too, if we find ourselves in Christ, we have no reason to fear because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. Not even death itself scares us. And I wonder if Paul, in this moment, if he was inspired by the jailer through the Spirit to say what he did when he wrote to this church about 10 years later, in the letter to the Philippians, he's writing Paul from prison. He's chained like an animal. And church history tells us that he was probably aware that his death by the Roman Empire was around the corner by beheading. And he's aware of this. But even still, he writes things like, yes, I will continue to rejoice if the gospel goes out, if people are strengthened by my suffering. Praise be to God, for I know that through your prayers, Philippian church, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly ex expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have enough courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Watch, whether by life or by death. Because for me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And for us, church, as we're waiting, walking with Jesus, sometimes our hearts, they long for this gain. When heaven reunites with earth, when light pierces through and cracks the sky open, when his two precious feet kiss the earth at his return, when that cold feeling shoots through our body from foot to head because the skin on the soles of our feet make contact with that street of gold, and that warmth in our heart is produced, so palpable, so real and intense that you can almost taste it on your tongue. May God help us to live with this assured hope, this expected hope, this confident hope of the end now. That's the struggle. The story moves to Paul and Silas. They fearlessly stand up to the, go the governing authorities and they defend their rights as Roman citizens and they demand that the the governing authorities actually be held accountable for the wrong that they did. And when the political authorities, when they realize they did wrong by unjustly condemning them, they try to appease them by personally escorting them from the prison. They eventually ask them to leave the city. 
But the disciples, they don't listen straight away. <laughs> they end up traveling back to the house of Lydia. And they spend time with the brothers and sisters encouraging them before they move on. You see, the disciples were strengthened by grace because they trusted all that God's plan was doing. And they did this by being obedient to Jesus as they followed him. You see, they knew that he was working out all things, even when it's difficult to see how. Even when we can't see the sun. Even if God's will brought blessing, explicit and immediate blessing, or blessing through hardship. Even if it brought comfort, or comfort through pain. Good, or good through bad. They were thankful when they trusted God, knowing that He knew what He was doing. And Paul, he developed a love for the Philippian church so great that in the same letter to the Philippians, he writes to them, 10 years later, again, in prison. And this is what he says when he thinks of them. How about we read together in closing? Turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's on page 1011 in the church Bibles. That's Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. 1011. From verse 3, this is what Paul says from prison, chained like an animal, when he thinks of the Philippian church. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God is leading and working all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Follow him, church, because he knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just sit before you in awe, just broken because of the many things that life throws at us, humbled because we don't have all the answers and we're not in control of everything. But Lord, we know you and you are, you are good and you do good. 
Your will never fails. Those the disciples, they wanted to take the word all throughout that area. They wanted to be faithful regardless of the circumstance. They wanted to be good witnesses for the name of Jesus, following your will, even when, when it was different to theirs. Help us, Lord. Help us also to follow your will, to be obedient to the name of Jesus and all that he asks us to do as we follow him. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.